Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris. This is episode 23, Pre-Dynastic Egypt. Egypt is a modern country, but in terms of the Neolithic period, we are looking at the Nile Valley as the fertile lands of Egypt. The desiccation of the Sahara Desert started as a result of the warming of the climate since the last glacial maximum, and many humans have migrated to a life around the Nile River by the start of the Neolithic. It appears through the archaeological record that agricultural lifestyles developed from around 8000 BCE onwards and that there was a connection of culture to the Fertile Crescent as opposed to Egypt developing in total independence from the Asian lands of the Fertile Crescent. It does appear also that the peoples of the Nile Valley did not immediately become sedentary farmers and that there was a period of nomadic pastoralism, which is basically the controlled herding of wild animals. There is also evidence that humans had a very intimate knowledge of wild grasses and knew how to take care of and harvest such plants. So although that they were not domesticating fauna and flora in a way that we would associate with the Neolithic, they were certainly carrying out control of these things, which serves well as an example of a link between hunter-gatherer lifestyles and sedentary farming lifestyles. It does appear that in the same way that we were able to culturally separate Mesopotamia into two areas, that being northern Mesopotamia and southern Mesopotamia, we can do the same with Egypt. Lower Egypt is the northernmost region centred around the Nile Delta on the Mediterranean Sea. Upper Egypt is further south, but still in the south of the modern country of Egypt. Carden Culture Fred Wendorf was an American professor of anthropology born in 1924, and some 40 years later, in 1964, Wendorf and his team discovered an archaeological site in the Nile Valley, in the very north of the modern-day country of Sudan. The site is called Jebel Sahaba and is the site of cemetery containing the bones of 61 individuals, which perhaps dates to around 13,000 years ago. In 11,000 BCE, the younger Dryas was starting to take hold with temperatures in the northern hemisphere suddenly dropping. Men, women and children of this area of the Nile Valley were apparently being subjected to acts of violence. Many of the skeletons show signs of injuries that have healed and many of the skeletons show signs of fatal injuries caused by pointed 
stone projectiles such as arrowheads. Study of these skeletal remains suggests that the individuals may have belonged to a distinct culture that could possibly have been migrating northwards along the Nile River due to the fact that they were morphologically more similar to African humans to the south of this area than to the north. They may have been migrating due to the changing climate conditions brought about due to the younger Dryas, forcing humans to cling to the river's edge. They may have stumbled across some unwelcoming residents of this area who violently butchered these individuals who may well have looked very distinct. Some experts believe that this could have been a battle between lighter skinned individuals from the north and darker skinned individuals from the south. One of the first instances of a battle based on xenophobic emotions perhaps. We believe that the perpetrators of this violence may have belonged to a culture called the Kadan, who appear to have an advanced epipaleolithic knowledge of the environment and the nature of fauna and flora. We can see evidence of some of the world's first stone sickles that date from this period, as well as grain grinding equipment. By epipaleolithic, we mean, in this context, on the cusp of becoming Neolithic. They are also referred to as a culture of ritual burials, suggesting a spiritual system of beliefs not unlike those already explored by this podcast previously. Crossroads of Cultures When we look on a modern day map, we look at Egypt as a country in the northeast of Africa. It is the gateway country to Asia and is the only African country that can be accessed from outside the continent without the necessity of a sea crossing. However, this makes Egypt extremely interesting because it really does have a history of association with the cultures of the Near East as well as the cultures of Africa. When Egypt entered the Neolithic, we can absolutely see evidence of agricultural cultures emerging from origins in the Near East and therefore giving us good cause to label the Lower Nile Valley as an extension and indeed an established part of the Fertile Crescent. There is no doubt, however, that in general, Egypt and the Nile Valley developed with definite cultural independence from Mesopotamia in the east of the Fertile Crescent. It is maybe the difference in geographical connections which see cultures that can be distinguishable developing in Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt. Lower Egypt was centred around the extremely fertile Nile Delta and many agricultural and cultural advances of the very successful Near East would have filtered into Africa via Lower Egypt. It does appear that agricultural lifestyles developed in Africa anyway and the successes of which may have been supported by the Neolithic subpluvial which was a period of fertility in the Sahara Desert which took place from the 8th millennium BCE right up until the first dynastic periods of ancient Egypt 
around the end of the 4th millennium BCE. There is not a huge amount of archaeological evidence from Egypt from the early Neolithic, but from the 5th millennium BCE we can certainly start to identify distinct cultures emerging in the two areas of the Nile Valley. Those around the Nile Delta, which we call Lower Egypt, and those around the cataracts of the Nile, which we will call Upper Egypt. 5th millennium BCE So by this period, the 5th millennium BCE, we do believe that Egyptians were more or less sedentary in and around the banks of the Nile River in both Lower and Upper Egypt. They may not have all been completely agricultural as they may have still been practising pastoralism in some areas, which is the herding of animals as opposed to their direct domestication. Domestication is something suggested to have been predominantly introduced from the Near East. Excavations from Lower Egypt in the 5th millennium BCE demonstrate that lifestyles were agricultural but that they were being supplemented by hunting and fishing. Pottery was also being created and used. Dwellings were often small, round huts with wattle or reed exteriors. Burials seem to have taken place with very little ceremony and very close to the dwellings. Maybe society was still quite egalitarian in this part of the world. Further up the river towards Upper Egypt and we notice more in the way of systematic burials. There may have been a social distinction between tribes people who may have been held in higher regard than the average man. But this doesn't necessarily mean that societies were class based as special burials had been going on for thousands of years in various human societies around the world. What is absolutely evident among these societies is that there has to be very definite trade links as the artefacts excavated during this period certainly cannot be described as local to the area. Basalt and copper likely came from the north where ceramic wares could have come from the south. It is likely that these societies were sedentary and agricultural as is evidence from the remains found there. Nakada. As we enter the 4th millennium BCE, we start to discover cultures that are historically referred to as the Nakada cultures, named after the town of Nakada, whose artefacts have proved to be vital in determining the history of Egypt directly before its ancient period. Nakada is in what we would refer to as Upper Egypt, on the banks of the Nile River. The Nakada cultures are split into three separate cultural periods. Nakada I, which is alternatively called the Amration. Nakada II, which is alternatively called the Gerzian. And Nakada III, which is alternatively called the Samanian. So we need to explore each one of these cultures in turn. Now, we should talk once again about climate change as we did in the previous podcast and the reason why we do this is because 
it is interesting to speculate about the impact that climate change can have on human societies. Could the sudden onset of the current Quaternary glaciation that was the start of the current ice age 2.5 million years ago have triggered human evolution as we know it? Could the eruption of Mount Tober around 80,000 years ago have encouraged a survival of the fittest where the human populations that survived it triggered a mysterious great leap forward in cognitive and technological human ability that scientists often refer to? Could the eruption of Campania have triggered pressures on hominin populations of Europe to compete for survival, therefore rendering the Neanderthals extinct? Could the younger Dryas have forced humankind to become more resourceful in order to survive the extreme conditions and therefore provide a catalyst for the Neolithic Revolution? In around 3900 BCE there was an intense aridification, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere. The event is called the 5.9 kilo year event to reflect the fact that it occurred 5.9 thousand years ago. Although the first Nakada period is believed to have emerged before this event, it is still believed to be the event which caused humans of these Egyptian lands to converge around the Nile River, abandoning the desert lands which would have been more habitable in the 4,000 years previous during the Neolithic subpluvial, which created the Green Sahara theory. The 5.9 kilo year event also coincides with the transition in Mesopotamia from the Ubayid period to the Uruk period. Maybe Mesopotamians were forced to the river's edges in the same way as societies were forced to expand and adapt, leading to the mass production of everyday practical objects such as bowls for carrying essential grains. The desiccation of the Sahara was a gradual thing though, happening over hundreds of years. But there is a lot going on to suggest changes in lifestyle were necessary to deal with this event and possibly even push humankind into an obligation to live in ever-increasing populations. What caused the 5.9 kilo year event? Well, some link it to North Atlantic ice rafting, creating fluctuations to the climatic balance but there is so much to look at when committing to such reasoning as it is highly contestable. The true answer is that we don't really know enough about it to be able to categorically state why it happened but we're confident that it did happen and we believe that it did trigger human migration to wetter and more fertile areas such as the Nile Valley. Amration culture well, as we mentioned, the Amration cultures first started emerging before the 5.9 kilo year event that was causing the desiccation of the Sahara. Some estimate it to have begun as early as 4400 BCE. The Amrations were clearly agricultural and were using copper to create objects. Ceramics were being produced with more practical purpose such as bowls, figurines and clay brick houses. We believe that there was a definite trade network with the north 
or the south to import luxury materials such as obsidian and gold. The ornamental ceramic pots were often coloured red with black or white bands and rims. The Amration culture is named after the type site at El Amra, which was occupied from 4400 BCE onwards. The most significant discovery at this site is the sheer amount of burials. There are over a thousand. Scientific observations of the burials of the Amration culture have led experts to declare that societies were growing larger, therefore supporting the theory of a migration towards land adjacent to the Nile and mirroring the emergence of large organised societies of the Uruk period of Mesopotamia. The dead were buried with rich grave goods, indicating spiritual beliefs, perhaps of an afterlife. Also, we can start to see the emergence of segregation of graves, demonstrating a likelihood of a class-based society beginning to emerge, possibly as a consequence of the growing sizes of settlements. The artefacts of the Amration demonstrate a trade network. Stone vessels indicate trade links with Lower Egypt. Obsidian may have come from the Ethiopian highlands. Other artefacts point towards materials coming from the Levant. There are a number of tools that have been excavated in and around these graves that show the use and modification of slate, flint, ivory and bone to create everyday tools. Apart from these things, we don't really know a lot else about the Amration due to the limited amount of artefacts and sites from this period. It would stand to reason that they were carrying on with the many aspects of the lifestyles of their predecessors, often referred to as the Badarian for distinction. The Badarian were known for their domestication of cereal grasses and sheep and goats and they were evidently hunting and fishing to supplement their diets. We also have evidence of slate pallets being used to grind down materials such as ochre and malachite in order to make paints which would have been great for painting pots but also great for painting faces, potentially necessary for striking fear into the hearts of invaders. Even though there is limited evidence at Amration sites, it could be relatively safe to assume that these Badarian practices may well have still been taking place. Gerzian culture. The Gerzian culture is referred to as the Nakada II culture and is believed to have supplanted the Amration culture sometime around 3500 BCE. We can continue to see the continuation of slate pallets being used for mixing paints. Tools and weapons, figurines, both human and animal. The most significant thing that strikes us in relation to the Gerzian culture excavations is the difference with the graves. And this could be partially explained by the difference in the artefacts. The artefacts suggest a much stronger trade link is present. Gerzians had a healthy trade with the lower Egyptians down the river towards the delta. They also appear to have had a healthy trade with those peoples upriver 
who we can refer to as the Nubians, as they come from the area which we now call the Nubian Desert, in the modern-day country of Sudan. The graves, in turn, seem to become more and more luxurious, as the dates become more modern. Some of the graves were being decorated with wooden planks, plaster, mud bricks and woven reed linings and matting. One of the tombs at a site called Hierocompolis has a depiction of everyday humans and animals painted on the plaster wall of the tomb. This level of effort is an emergence and to suggest that the individual to be buried in this grave would be of high standing would be supported by everything else that we have discovered about class-based societies naturally becoming a part of normal city life. Hierocompolis. The painted tombs have been found at a place called Hierocompolis on the Nile River in Upper Egypt. Hierocompolis is the city that is also historically referred to as Necken. It is possible that this site was occupied long before the Gerze culture of the late 4th millennium BCE, but it is certainly significant to the Gerze culture period. Some experts have suggested that between 5 and 10,000 people were living there before the dynastic era of ancient Egypt. The excavations made from the Hierocompolis that date before dynastic Egyptian times are absolutely fascinating. Some of the individuals that were buried were buried alongside considerable amounts of grave goods. In one case, an individual was buried alongside 20 other seemingly healthy individuals. Human sacrifice is something that has been suggested throughout the podcast series at various locations, but this particular grave points towards it strongly. Another incredible discovery at this site relates to exotic animals. The remains of baboons, hippopotamuses, hartebeest, elephants and wildcats have been found suggesting that someone was keeping a menagerie. Some experts suggest that the menagerie was a means of cementing status within the society. Maybe an early ruler believed that his people may show him much more respect if he showed them his pet elephant. One thing that we can see is that according to some of the animal remains, the humans could be quite violent towards them and this may have been a means to keep the animals under control. Many bones show signs of healed injuries, which points us towards this suggestion. One of the artefacts found at Hierocompolis is an ivory statue, which has actually been carved from a hippopotamus tooth, so therefore it is an entire foot long. Let's talk more about this painted tomb at Hierocompolis. The tomb is called Tomb 100, and was excavated in around 1898 by Frederick W. Green, an English Egyptologist. The first important thing is that the mural clearly shows boats, 
So as much as we believe that Neolithic peoples may have transported domestic animals to islands such as Cyprus by boat, we here have further evidence that travelling by boat was not a surprising thing to come across during the Neolithic. Another image shows a man with a large weapon wielded above his head over three unfortunate individuals. This image is reminiscent of later images depicting pharaohs smiting individuals with a weapon. So we could be talking about an early ruler and maybe even the ruler who was intended for the grave. Yet another image shows a man standing between two animals. Another iconic image which has been discovered on other artefacts and may point towards the influential power of a man who can restrain aggressive animals, maybe in a bid to win the obedience of his population. Maybe this was the same man keeping a menagerie in the city as a demonstration of status and ability. The painting suggests that the story could involve the conflict of two armies, with one group of peoples having red skin and the other having black skin. The animals associated with each side are also red and black, indicating that the colours are possibly not accurate to real skin colour but simply as a means of artistic distinction. I have read a few accounts of the artwork and nobody is really sure what the battle is or who the belligerents are, but we can see that there does appear to be some form of ruling elite in this society and that sea travel and warfare were not something to be surprised to see during the Neolithic. Samanian culture. Already now we are seeing clues about the first signs of ancient Egypt emerging, but there is one more pre-Danistic culture to explore, and that is the Samanian, which is alternatively named Nakada III. This is referenced to have emerged around 3200 BCE. This is the period of history where Egyptologists believe that the formation of Egypt's first dynasty took place. It is also the period of history where we believe that populations were definitely irrigating the Nile River. One of the most influential cities of this period was Nakada itself, the city after which the cultures of pre-dynastic Egypt are named and the city where we believe that the Amoration culture may have emerged possibly a thousand years previously. So we know that there were two significant cities in Egypt at this time and archaeology has supported this. Hierakompolis was the southernmost one of the two and if you travelled downriver around 60 to 70 miles you would arrive at Nakada. Now last week when we were discussing Mesopotamia we reached a point where we discovered that the earliest signs of cuneiform that is the early Mesopotamian writings were beginning to emerge. Well we're about to find out that the same thing happened in Egypt. The first hieroglyphs were being used which would become Egypt's first writings and therefore the first sign of Egypt moving from prehistory to history itself. It is through the first writings of Egyptians that we know of another very important city involved in the birth of ancient Egypt. 
Thinis. Thinis is a lost city. We do not know its exact location as it does not appear to have been found by anybody. However, we do know that according to the earliest writings it must have existed. We do believe that it was quite closely linked to the known prehistoric city of Abydos which is further downstream of the Nile River and therefore it is believed that Thinis must have been nearby. It is believed that the city-states of Egypt by this time had started to converge politically until there were three major cities of influence in Upper Egypt. They were Hierakampolis or Nekan as it is otherwise known, Nakada and Thinis which was closely linked to Abydos. Now it is very difficult to find out exactly what happened at that pivotal time when all the major city-states of Egypt united to become the first dynasty of Egypt. It appears that Nakada fell under the influence of Thinis and then at some point Nekan, otherwise known as Hierakonpolis, also joined up with Thinis creating a united Upper Egypt. And it is at this point that we believe that the powerful Upper Egypt conquered Lower Egypt and created the first Egyptian dynasty. The first ruler. So, who was in charge? Well, the man credited for unifying Egypt and founding the first dynasty is Menes. This is supported by the Abydos king list, which is inscribed on a wall of the temple of Seti I at the city of Abydos. It is also the name used by Manetho, who is believed to have been a priest and historian who lived in Egypt around 3,000 years later. However, if we go back to the work of Frederick W. Green, who we mentioned earlier in the podcast as the English Egyptologist who worked at Hierakonpolis, otherwise known as Necken, something very significant was found. The object is called the Nama Palette, and it is a two-foot-high siltstone palette in the shape of a shield, and on both sides are hieroglyphic inscriptions which depict a character called Nama as the man who unified Egypt. The thing is that the palette is believed to be contemporary. Some seal impressions at the tombs of pharaohs in Abydos also name Nama as the first pharaoh. So where do we go with this? Is it Menes or is it Nama? Well, it is so confusing that I read a text from a children's journal because we talk to children in simple and understandable terms and I for one think that that's the best way. It says that Nama may be the same person as Menes. Menes means he who endures and that may simply be a title given to Nama. 
unfortunately, that's the very best I can do for you all uh, regarding that vital piece of information about the beginnings of dynastic Egypt. But let's be honest, most historical stories are guessed in any case. I'm happy to accept that Nama and Menes are probably the same person because an entire podcast could be devoted to the pros and cons of that argument and that's really not going to help us learn more about the wonders of ancient Egypt which is pretty much where we have ended up now. One final point of business is that despite most of the build-up in relation to the wealth and power of pre-dynastic Egypt being in Upper Egypt, it does appear that Menes is attributed with the foundation of the city of Memphis in Lower Egypt, which a few hundred years later would replace Thinis as the capital of unified Egypt. Next time on the History of the World podcast, we will be summarising the Neolithic period in a bid to draw our story of the prehistoric world to a close. We'll also be picking up on some of the things that happened between 10,000 BCE and 3,000 BCE that we forgot to mention in these last nine podcasts. Thank you once again for listening to the History of the World podcast again this week, for taking that time to catch up with the stories that we're presenting on this podcast. Um, The podcast is more popular than ever at the moment and it's very, very exciting for me to see, very motivating and it's uh, it's, uh, making me look forward to the next set of podcasts. So we're bringing Volume 1 to a close. So next week will be the last podcast of Volume 1 and um, we'll be looking forward then to Volume 2, The Ancient World and I think it will be dynamically very different. It'll be a lot more historical context to the stories and... um, you know, we'll be exploring some of the events that happened, actual events that happened in our history, in our past. I did get a couple of messages that I didn't read out from uh, last week, so I just want to catch up with those because I do like to read them out. Someone takes the trouble to send me a message. It's nice to give it a mention. Carter Herndon emailed in, um, well, he actually made a recommendation on the Facebook page, if I'm honest. So he said, this is a new favourite. Uh, He's talking about the podcast, of course. I have always wondered about the origins of language, so I started out with episode 6, and after that I wanted to listen to the rest. I'm currently up to episode 17, and I look forward to listening to future podcasts. Well done, and keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Carter. Um, Also, Michael Arnold got in touch. Uh, Love the podcast. Found you on Overcast about a month ago and have listened to all 21 episodes keep up the good work cheers thank you for your comments gentlemen um really does mean a lot so thank you well i've had a terrible week if i'm honest with you i'm still trying to get to the bottom of this uh hominin on the side of the grub truck in idaho so john martinson emailed in um he said he uh, sent me a picture and said, here we go, is a picture of a hominin on the side of a food truck in Idaho, and um, we're trying to get to the bottom of exactly what it is. So if a couple of suggestions have come backwards and forwards, I thought, oh no, I'll do the clever thing, I'll ask the expert. So I, I posted a picture on the Twitter account, 
I approached the experts no less than Paige Madison, Chris Stringer from the Natural History Museum, uh, Ella Al-Shamahi, who uh, makes some wonderful TV programmes, Professor Alice Roberts, uh, anyone that knows anything about paleoanthropology in Britain and has watched any uh, TV, would all know who Professor Alice Roberts is. And Lee Rogers Berger, the man who's uh, setting up all those wonderful cave exploration projects in South Africa. I've um, I contacted each of them to ask them what they thought uh, this animal was on the side of the grub truck and... None of them replied, so they are all far too busy to be worried about my issues with the uh, with the grub truck. But I won't give up. I will find someone else, someone else with uh, expertise, and uh, I'll be a little bit more persistent. So we will get to the bottom of it. We will find out from a paleoanthropological expert what this thing is on the side of the grub truck. Well, that's your lot, I'm afraid, for this week. Uh, next week, uh, it will be the summary episode where we wrap up the Neolithic, um, the whole prehistoric volume of podcasts. Uh, we'll end it to the very last episode, episode 24. So we'll look forward to that, wrapping up this volume of podcasts. And uh, until next week, have a safe and fun week, and we will link up again one week from now. The History of the World podcast is hosted by Audioboom. It is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Podcast Republic, Stitcher and TuneIn. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter.